The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Discretion is advised. Episode 96 of Rare Form Radio is upon us. And we are here together on this joyous day to celebrate this joyous day. Right, Darren? Yes, yes, yes. I'm in the house. I'm in the house. Before we get started, I want to uh, give a hello to our new patron, Fatty Ash. Thank you very much for joining the party. If anybody else wants to join our Patreon, patreon.com slash rareformradio. You get extra episodes, extended director's cuts, behind-the-scenes clips, and all of Darren's nudes, which are really, really something to behold. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's something already. Yeah. I'm very excited today. You know, there's someone we have on the show today who I've wanted to talk to one-on-one for a very long time. And that person is the one and only Kay Hanley. Welcome. I'm to clap for myself. You have to. Darren, Darren didn't. He didn't because he knows I'm from Boston. <laughs> That's right. We've already established there are many disagreements between us. There, so, there's uh, going to be more, too. There's, yeah, there's a couple. Yeah. Um, Maybe there will be even more. Oh, I can't wait. We're going to find out. I can't wait. <laughs> um, people may know Kay uh, from the band Letters, uh, Letters to Cleo, a very um, a cool Boston band that I missed in the heyday. You guys started 1990? 90, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was 10 when you, got, when you started that band. Mm-hmm. As, as you were. You started at 10 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't, doesn't matter. Um, but it's the kind of band where I discovered... Like more towards the end of 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 your run, it was like a ten year ten year yeah. run, right? Yeah. Um, but I was proud because you you were one of the cooler kind of Boston bands. There's not uh-huh. a whole lot of really cool Boston bands. You know what I mean? At least back then, I didn't feel like that were that were known countrywide. Besides, like Boston, Aerosmith, and the Bostones, kind of were the only ones to me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think I felt differently because we had, uh, when I was younger, when I was sort of like in my adolescence, we had V66, which was a video station that was on. Remember, you probably don't remember this, but maybe some other people will. You used to have to, there were only like a couple of TV stations on your TV. And in order to, there was like the three networks and then there was like you could get cartoons on and like horror movies and stuff on Channel Fifty Six. You could get hockey game. You can get Bruins on. They were on 38. UPN. UPN, right? I don't know. UPN it, was later, but that was thirty eight. I thought thirty eight was UPN. Maybe it became that later, okay, okay. but it was like I forget what it was. But you would have to. So there was this video station called V sixty six where you had to like. Put one of the dials to U, UHF, I guess. Okay. And then you could go to V66, which was Channel 66. And there were like all of these local bands that were like New Man and the Sex Execs and uh, Mission of Burma. Oh, Mission of Burma. They were cool. Of course. I mean, they didn't, yeah. have, like a, they didn't have like a big national but They kind of do thing. now. I they're, mean, they're one of those bands that found late life. Exactly. Exactly. And like they're also a band that were... Everyone talks about how cool they are, but they can't name three songs. You know what I mean? Only Revolver. Like Joy Division is kind of another band like that, where everyone (laughs) loves Joy Division or the Misfits, but you can't name a song, but they make good (laughs) t-shirts. Totally. You know what I mean? That they still sell at the mall, right? Exactly. But then in the 90s, I felt like, 
Like I, I followed around because I, I started in my first band when I was 17. My cousin Greg started a band and he, uh, I he, have to know what it was called by the way. I love, it was called Rebecca Lula. Okay. And I used to sing at mass with my mom, like, and I would sing it at like all the family weddings and stuff like that. And cool. so Greg knew that I sang at mass with my mom and he was starting this band and he was like, Hey, do you want to like be the backup singer and I was like fuck yeah I want to be the backup singer in your band and he like wrote all the lyrics and everything and the bass player was the lead singer and I was like the backup singer but at that time before I could get into clubs and stuff there were like so many bands to follow around like I remember loving like the heretics and tribe and uh, morphine wasn't around yet, but like oh, yeah, morphine, dump truck. Cool. And mm-hmm. I mean, there were like so many bands to follow around. And then of course, like the bot when I started in the band and we started playing like real clubs, you know, then morphine, we actually, I started writing songs at some point. And that's a whole other story. Then we fired everybody and started Letters to Cleo. The, the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. I feel like it was probably. And how old, how old were you when you started Letters to Cleo? That was, Probably like 21. Okay. 21, 22. And what were those first shows like for you? Oh, God. Were you playing like garages? Were you doing like, what were you doing back then? We, um, we had, well, Rebecca Lula had crazy gigs. Like we played at the basement of this place in Faneuil Hall and, um, they would pay it. We would have to play for like three sets, three hour long sets. And we had like all of these like covers that we would play and um and then when letters to cleo started like i just remember playing out on like city hall boston city hall like out in that big like concrete jungle they would set up stages we'd play there we would play literally anywhere i remember playing at like a rib fest like there was a festival of ribs like we would it was literally like you know puppet show before of course course. (laughs) before the puppet show we would we would, we would. How many times must I tell you? Yeah. yeah. We were sluts for shows. We of would play course. anywhere. <laughs> of course. Um, and then, of course, you know, since Letters to Cleo, you've had a, a really uh, an understated career, like uh, songwriting and writing for mm-hmm. films. And mm-hmm. you've done so much stuff. Um, is it more satisfying for you in your career to have been in the band that had some success or the work you're doing now for like musicians rights and writing for TV shows. And Mm -hmm. where do you get your most uh, satisfaction from of those things? Well, to back up just a little bit, this is going to sound weird, but I never enjoyed being the lead singer of a band. I always felt, and especially like when I was waiting tables and then like, you know, my, the place where I would like blow off steam, the sacred place was like, rehearsal or like you know leaving you know working a double shift on you know Thursday and then getting in the van at 11 o'clock at night and we would play all weekend long you know Mm -hmm. like that that was when like I really enjoyed it and then when we like when we signed a record deal in 94 I guess I started to feel like I had to do it and at that point, you know, you know, how a we, job. you know how we are, yeah. Boston people. It's like, you know, if you, if you tell me to do it, I don't, <laughs> don't want to fucking, fucking do tell it. me what to do. I don't want to do it. Yeah. You're not so, my mother. Right. <laughs> and also like, I also felt this weird thing of like, I'm, you know, I, I grew up believing that like 
success meant like getting a job with Benny's, you know, like going to work at like, you know, you know, for the union, like, you know, becoming a carpenter or like being a nurse or working for the Edison or like, you know, things that were like very stable and middle, you know, blue cop. Blue collar people in Boston. That's just kind security. of what you it's did, right. right? And like for me, doing this thing that was like being a, in a band, like it felt, um, it it didn't feel right. And I also felt always felt really strange about having to sell myself as like a product. And I remember when we did um, the video for Here and Now, and I had like, you know, I wrote back then bands didn't have like stylists and shit. Like I just rolled out of bed and like picked up whatever was on the floor, put my dirty hair in pigtails and went to the set and shot the video, you know. So but my not knowing that it was going to become like a thing. And when I two things, two things happened that were like really like, oh, this is weird and I don't like it. First thing was when we got to South by Southwest um, in 95, maybe. And that that video was kind of like on MTV a lot. It was on like Beavis and Butthead. And and we got to South by Southwest and we got to the hotel and I like went to the laundromat to do some laundry. And the guy who was there was like, oh, hey, you look like the girl from that band from the video. And I was just like, whoa. Was that your first time being recognized outside Outside of Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that felt really, like, I didn't like it. Really? I did not like it. It felt, I mean, I wasn't mad at it, but it felt scary to me. You probably felt very exposed. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, like, I was just like, I am not... Like why, then, do you, why do you know me? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Have we met before? And then, um, actually, another thing that happened was we got back to Boston, and the Boston Herald, and we were, like, playing a show out on the Esplanade or something, and the Boston Herald ran a huge picture of me with, like, my hair, like, a mess. Because I didn't, like dress up for show, right, you know, and, um, and, you know, like, said something snide about my appearance or something. And I was just like, well, that's fucked up too. And then we got back to LA. Since when does the media rip on women's appearance, by the way? Well, what the fuck? Right? I mean, that would not happen now. No, no, no. never. Um, and then when we got back to LA, so anyway, b- because of all of that, I like colored my hair, like fire engine red and like, just changed things and, you know, and we got to LA um, to, you know, do promo, you know, to set up promo for that album. And they flipped out that I had, didn't have blonde pigtails anymore. And I was just like, cause you weren't the girl is... from the video. Right. And they had nothing to like, now it's like, we have to change all the marketing. And so none of it felt great to me. And I, I felt this like responsibility, not just to like write songs, but to like sell myself. And I, did I had no interest in doing that. So I kind of sabotaged us in a lot of ways. And what I didn't really appreciate, what I know now that I didn't appreciate then is that like what I was doing, you know, like writing songs and being in this band was like really like giving young girls who like hadn't seen themselves, you know, and in, in, in the 90s, not for nothing, there were a bunch of us like in that three-year period between like 94 and 97 yeah like women were 
all over like garbage in the Sundays oh and uh, the cardigans and fruit of salt, and, salt. And, and you know belly and throwing muses and sure oh you yeah know, Julian Hatfield <laughs> and you know like there were, like women were running the show yeah but we were still you know not not that's we could do a whole other you know podcast about that but we should sometime That'd we be should yeah. right <laughs> um i have a lot to say about that but what i didn't realize is that what i was doing was really important it didn't feel important to me and i didn't respect it at the time but i do now and what um when i did get i started getting some chances later on in that period to do um to do some tv and film stuff mm-hmm. and i realized um in 19, probably 99, I got a chance to go do vocals for Josie and the Pussycats. And when I did that, I was like, wait a minute, I can just show up at the studio, like other people write the songs, I sing, I get paid. I can show up in a hoodie. The, and right. The, right. And like, and just get paid for my work. I worked with, um, with Babyface during that time too. Babyface was the producer of, of those songs, at least the songs for the Adam Schlesinger did the stuff, did the production. For R.I.P. The Adam. I know. Um, and actually it was Adam Schlesinger and Mike Deneen from Q division who was our, so both of them are now gone, which is just like unbelievable mm. to me. Um, but when I did the stuff with Babyface, what I saw, you know, we would have to go, you know, we would be recording at his house one day at his studio over on La Brea another day. And then the, uh, you know, this studio, that studio. And I saw that there was a way to be a creative person and still have complete control and be a business person and like be, be paid for your work. And that stuck with me. And so, you know, of course, many years later, that's what I do. Not, mm-hmm. not at baby faces level, no, but like no, I'm but behind the scenes, you you're know? doing a huge thing. And I, I was going to save that towards the end, but let's, I want to get into that now. You, you started, um, or did you start Sona? Yes. Which is the songwriters, songwriters of, of North, North America. America. And what is the point? Tell me, tell me what the, what your mission is. Okay. Cause it's, it's super important. If, if you guys don't know, artists are taken advantage of from day one until, yeah. until the end, basically. Right. right? I mean, yeah. it's still to this day, maybe the most fucked over line of work you could be in is yeah. entertainment, especially music mm-hmm. so go ahead yeah. okay so michelle lewis and i michelle is my writing partner and um she and i uh <laughs> as i was saying earlier what do you drink are you drinking a mickey's damn right he is no oh my god that it's, is he like put- such remember the mickey's with like the fat oh it was mouth, mickey's that was mickey's right like yeah. fat mouth or something yeah is it's that, like, a, like a mickey's right? big gulp yeah yeah Oh my God, I remember those. <laughs> oh yeah, here, here you go, Boston. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's in your honor. He did that in your honor. Yeah. In your honor. That's amazing. In your honor. It's close. It's close. In your honor. Um, so Michelle and I have been writing partners since uh, what, since I moved to LA. And um, she had moved from New York a year before I did. And I moved to LA in 2003. Um, so we like, we started writing and, uh, you know, have had like, have done a million things, but what we have been doing for the past decade is writing songs for, um, animation. So 
like I write songs for, for Disney and you did uh, Doc McStuffins is a big one that you've done yeah. all, all the music for that, right? We did all the songs for Doc McStuffins, um, DC Superhero Girls, did uh, Ghoul Girls for Vampirina. Um, we're doing right now uh, Ada Twist Scientist for Netflix, which is under the Obama's oh, production company, nice. which is so cool. And our former boss, Chris Nee, from Doc, the creator of Doc McStuffins, she's over at Netflix now and working with the Obamas. You ever do video games or anything? I actually did. Now that you mention it, I did. Uh, I never wrote. I did vocals for um, Team Rose on. Shit, what is that Too video good. game? NBA 2K? No, no, no. It's like it's a, it's like a, a hedgehog. Sonic, Sonic the hedgehog. hedgehog. Yeah. Oh, that's big. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I didn't write it, but I sang on that. Cool. But no, video games are not my thing. Although when it's we also get, a totally different when animal. When we get into like. the crypto conversation, we can. There, there's a lot of stuff in there with a lot Bloodshed. of ideas. Yeah. Bloodshed. Um. <laughs> 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 So Michelle and I, so Michelle's former life was writing songs for artists. So she had had some like big cuts with like Kelly Osbourne and Cher and has written songs for. So while we <clears throat> were kind of holed up in the studio doing songs for uh, Doc McStuffins, she had had a hit with this band called Little Mix in like 2015. I guess, and um, and she was like really excited to start seeing because you know when you have a hit on the radio, like a global hit song, like it's bank. I wouldn't know. I would not know either. <laughs> so that's that makes both. But it's life changing. It's totally life changing. Mm -hmm. So she was. She looked at her statement when the when the little mix. It's a song called Wings. Great song. Um, <clears throat> I hear it. At, I used to hear it at Spin all the time. Um, so she um, was looking at her ASCAP statements and saw that this song had gotten something, I'm going to get the math wrong, but something like <clears throat> 17 million views on YouTube. And her cut was like, I don't know, 50 bucks, something like that. And we were like, what the hell is going on? It, it was just like, it made no sense. It was like, how well, can It takes your breath be? away. I mean, it's, it's like, really I'm going to get a like, house. I'm going to take care of my parents. This yeah. is going to be wonderful. Mm -hmm. But everybody is now listening to consuming music over at YouTube uh, and watching the video over and over and over again, and they're not paying. And we were like, this is really crazy. So we we made an appointment. to. There was this, this attorney uh, named Dina LaPolt, and we had heard through the grapevine that she was doing a lot of work in in this area of like copyright and like trying to get songwriters paid. So we uh, we made an appointment to go in and see her at her big fancy office over on Sunset. And we walked into her office, and she literally said, "Where the fuck have you bitches been? You're the first songwriters to walk through my door, and they're eating you for lunch." And we were like, like, what? like "We're home, <laughs> great." Wow. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. like I can really identify yeah. with that kind of, I yep. that speaks to me. Yeah. You know. So no bullshit. she then goes on to tell us about uh that songwriters are, are under a consent decree. And what a consent decree is, it's it's generally um an antitrust action that is taken by the Department of Justice to 
to hold companies who are acting in a monopolistic way to account. Um, so it basically lays out a, a, a code of conduct for your business. And the reason that this started was in 1939, uh, 1939. By the way, that's, the, when the, that's when Hitler invaded Poland. Right? I mean, that's how long ago it was, yes. you know? And this was when we were still talking about piano rolls. Right. Like that was how, you know, and like, so, in 1939, ASCAP was uh, was the first the first organization to start licensing performance stuff, royal, yeah. royal performance yeah. royalties, which is a very specific kind of royalty. And so, um, back then, it was like radio and TV were just getting started. And since ASCAP was the only game in town, what they did was start acting in a way that because they were the only game in town, they started price gouging and, you know, and of course the, you know, network, the, the broadcasters complained to the department of justice and slapped ASCAP with a consent decree. And so, um, and then four years later in like 1942, when BMI came on the scene, they ended up getting folded into that. I was going to ask how much sooner, how much sooner, how much longer after that did BMI come? So it was that quick. Yeah. So, um, when the broadcasters started their own, mm-hmm. uh, their own performance um, rights organization. So, anyway, usually now a lot of industries ha- and a lot of companies have um, have consent decrees, but usually they sunset after like ten years or whatever. Ours have been in place for, I mean, I mean, it'll eighty be a, years. Yeah, eighty years. Yeah. Um, and the whole entire, and so basically a couple of the things that the consent decree says is first of all, songwriters cannot say no. If someone wants to play your song, you cannot say no as a song. If you're the artist, if you're the performer, you can, if you're the songwriter, you cannot, you're not allowed to say no. So, um, and also, um, how it is sort of like ended up working out in the streaming economy is that the labels, uh, the labels, same as it ever was, they're just like the biggest dicks in the world. <laughs> um, they they're went like pimps. In, they're like worse they, than pimps. Oh my you know? God. Well, they went and did deals with all of the streaming services for a certain rate. The streaming services did not realize that they also had to do a deal with the PROs, which are like ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, uh, we're all under the consent decrees. Was PRO like performance royalty something? Performance or? rights organization. Okay. So what a performance right is is like when your um, when your song is performed like on TV on the radio. Those are performance rights, or think of it as like sheet music. So right. there, so every song actually has two pies. There is the sound recording, which is like the record. Right. You know, and then there is the performance the in the publishing side, which is, you know, we can think of as like the lyric and melody. Right. So. Like happy birthday. Correct? What's that? Like happy birthday. Oh, happy yes, birthday. that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. See, I know what I'm talking about. You sure do. <laughs> Goddamn right, Darren. Yeah, oh, yeah, you're not firing me yet. Not yet. <laughs> not today. Well, not yet. We'll see today. how it goes. Yeah. We have a lot of show left, you know. <laughs> um, so. In the streaming economy, it, the way it works out is that uh, the labels get, uh, or the streaming services pay out, 
again, I'm going to get this math wrong, but approximately 70% of revenues to the sound recording, which is the labels. And of that, the songwriter, the on our side, on the publishing side, we get 4% of that. So... It I mean, is, it makes sense. It seems fair. Oh, yeah, totally. Jesus. So it's completely upside down. That's why songwriters are uniquely screwed in the streaming music business. And so what Sona, what Sona was conceived as, um, at really as a friend group. So after we left Dina LaPolt's office and she blew our minds with all this stuff about consent decrees, basically what it means is that a songwriter's income is controlled 75% by the fucking U.S. government. Who knew that? I did not I, know I this. didn't know that until I was cruising the site yesterday. Did not know that. Yeah. Right. Yep. So it's shocking to people. And so when we left her, we were like, oh, my God, we have to tell our friends. And uh, about six weeks later, we held our first uh, songwriter summit and uh, got about 100 songwriters in a room over at the Old Ocean Way and um, and just basically told them everything we knew about, which wasn't a lot at that time. And I bet most of them didn't know that. No, no. But everybody had been kind of thinking the same thing. Like, how is this? Like, we're getting fucked over, but we don't know how. We're getting screwed. Yeah. We don't understand why we don't like, it seems like we should just be able to change it. And, but the thing is, is that it's not just about mean tweets. Sona has, you know, we're all also like nerds. And so the way we decided to go about it was go to Washington and, and, um, and, and so we're really trying to change it through legislation. And, but, you know, we, we, ended up getting into just like a lot of stuff with politics really at the beginning. And obviously things have changed a lot in the last year since, um, since COVID hit and, you know, we identified bigger, you know, bigger, more pressing problems with, you know, our community and have had to really adapt just like everyone else really had to adapt. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, people can go to, uh, we mm-hmm. is the website, but there's a couple things on there. Um, uh, that I found out that songwriters are not allowed to unionize under current U.S. law. We are not. Why? What is, I didn't know there was laws um, against unions anywhere. I didn't know that. <laughs> because we don't have a boss. Because we don't have. Because um, we're independent contractors. Hmm. But couldn't you? Couldn't there be a way to like start an organization where there is a boss and then? Everyone kind of sums well, up to it. Well, I mean, you could argue that, like, you know, if you are signed to a publishing deal, that you can, that you are reporting to someone. You right. know that that that's your boss. You have a boss, or, sort of. But we, there are. It's so crazy, complicated, and especially under Reagan, he really, really you know, put the hammer down on unionizing, just collective bargaining in general. I didn't and know so, that. Yeah. yeah. So when he fired, remember he fired all the, oh, you were probably not was, even born. I was like, so he like just discovering yeah. my penis at that point. I had no idea what was going on. That was the early days. <laughs> Last week? <laughs> Thank you, dear. Thank you. No, that was your penis. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We okay. roll cool in here. Oh, I see. I see Very how laid this back. goes. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> if that's what you call it, Dan. yeah, that's laid back. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know. Yeah, um, so he, so th- this was back uh, in the '80s. Air traffic controllers went on strike, and 
President Reagan just fucking fired them all and replaced them. Brutal. And like, yeah, he was, yeah, it was not cool. Here I was thinking um, he was just a cool dude this whole time. Man. So, yeah, so we are not allowed to org- to coll- collectively bargain because we cannot unionize. Weird. Yeah. But we're trying to find other ways around it. Um, you know, that we have very smart people now in our ranks. You know, we have lawyers and, you know, lobbyists and people that were, you know, trying to find workarounds for it. Has anything been improved yet since you've started this? Has there any, any, any uh, laws been changed? Have you seen any... Yeah. Anything happen so far? One of the things that we were really actively involved in was the Music Modernization Act. And um, what the Music Modernization Act does is, and the reason that we were really, really into it, and we ended up working with a lot of Republicans to get that done, because weirdly, uh, Republicans are great on copyright, personal property, you know, and, um, and Why is that? Democrats are not. Democrats Why? are terrible on copyright. Why? Um, because um, copyright is a personal property right. Okay. And, um, and Republicans hate regulation mm-hmm. and they hate the consent decrees and they also feel like... And they love money. <laughs> and they love money, right? Yeah. And Democrats are still... I think this might be changing a little bit, but under Obama... Uh, you know, all of the staffers were thinking, you know, everyone was really under the sway of Silicon Valley and like these, they can, and also all of these, everyone in the Obama administration was like, could not wait to like go to work for Silicon Valley after they were done. So it was like, so they, and there was also like a little bit of the like, don't break the internet, everything free, everything. So there were a lot of, ideologies out there amongst the more progressive base that were at odds with uh with music copyrights so we ended up working with a lot of republicans um but this was during the obama administration so it didn't feel so disgusting it got pretty it felt pretty gross later sure um especially when we were uninvited from the signing of the music modernization act at the um at uh at trump's office not that we you know we went to washington when it was being signed when the bill was being signed uh, to have like a party and stuff like that and um like Paul Williams, you know Paul Williams, right? I don't think so. Yes, you do. I do? Like Rainy Day, he wrote all the songs. He wrote like um, Rainbow Connection. Okay. He wrote all the Carpenter songs. Okay. And he's like, so, and he's the, the president of ASCAP. Okay. He was literally in the driveway of the White House to go to the signing ceremony, and they told him to go home. Why? Because President... Trump was very, as we know, very petty, very vindictive, and um, Paul is very outspoken Democrat, and he just didn't want any Democrats in the room. Yeah, yeah. and um, and the only woman in there was uh, Marsha Blackburn, and uh, there were no no Democrats, not one. Cool. Yeah. And very, no songwriters. Cool. I mean, except for fucking Kanye. And that's the whole point was, yeah, is for songwriters. So the reason that, to back up just a little bit, the reason that we were, um, you know, really gung-ho about the passage of the Music Modernization Act, which is not perfect, um, and there's a lot of, like, to my mind, you know, it's lacking in some modernity, 
Um, but what we liked is that it's centralized, um, a digital mechanical royalty. And I will tell you what that is. Yes, please. So back in the olden days, um, when a songwriter would get a cut on an album, the way they would get paid is through what was called, for every sale, they would receive a mechanical royalty. Mm -hmm. Once there were no more album sales, you know, obviously that entire revenue stream was decimated. There so this started no... like 20 years ago of becoming a real problem. Yes. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and, um, and so there was a digital mechanical, but there was no, it wasn't centralized. It was like, so this codified a centralized body that would oversee, collect and distribute a digital mechanical royalty so and that is called the uh, the uh, mechanical licensing collective the mlc okay and i am on i am um on the unclaimed royalties oversight committee i am the co-chair and what do, what do you do with that how does that happen what do you what is the so unclaimed royalties are i guess what is that for people so, that don't know <laughs> well and this is kind of my my battle cry right now is songwriters cleaning up their data. Like when you, so if your data is dirty, you ain't going to get paid. Like your stuff is going to be unmatched when it, when it get, when it's in the streaming services, if they don't know who you are, you're not going to get paid. Mm -hmm. So songwriters have to do a better job of like, when you go into the studio, like if there's like you, your co-writer and the producer, are you all co-writers? What are your names? What PRO do you belong to? Are you splitting it three ways? What is the song title? Like that is the birth of the metadata of a song mm -hmm. and getting, making sure that that stuff is correct in the room that day is critical. But like, we don't do that. No one does it that. feels uncomfortable. It's icky. Like, yeah. Who I was just about to say, um, has it become a nightmare? Because I've been in those situations. Right? Well, I mean, it shouldn't be. We should be better about talking to each other about the business of it. Personally. It's so uncomfortable. Right? It's almost yeah. like, Very a, um, like a, uh, uh, oh my God, when you get married. Um, uh, Marriage? No, when you. A license? No, when you don't want to take someone's money. You don't want them to take your money. Oh, uh, a prenup. Oh, a prenup. prenup. It's almost right. like a prenup. Yeah. Where like No one wants to have that right, uncomfortable. Right, but you should. Because who really, and also... We're all friends in here. We're just making a record, baby. We'll work it out later. It can be uncomfortable yeah, to be right. like, we're splitting this three-way, which is my philo personal philosophy is who's ever in the room. Like, we just split it three ways. I agree 100%. Two ways, you know, because like... We I, all feel that way, and that is not normal. I think a lot it, of people like... Uh, do we all right. agree on this? I agree. Wow. I agree. Yeah, right. I agree. That's a good sign. Yep. We all agree. Except that this podcast makes a lot of money. Goes to Danny Boy. <laughs> really? I don't. Yeah. I don't get. I got residuals. this on record. I'll Wait, get you a bottle of wine or something, or, or Mickey's. I'll get you your own Mickey's if you want. No one wants that. <laughs> cool. I'm, a, I'm a sober dude. Hey. Okay, cool. Good, good, good for you. <laughs> no one wants me to have, be having Mickey's in the middle of the day. Oh, gets a little crazy. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, they pulled my card. Oh shit. Um, so as far as the streaming services, what's the worst one as far as paying artists? Because I've seen you and I. We've only, this is only like the third time we've ever met face to face, really. Which is so weird because I, I feel know. like we know each other. We run in the same circles. We have yeah. a lot of similar friends, mm -hmm. and we're in the same business. And plus, we've been Twitter buds. That's what I was going to say. Is that like uh, Twitter is kind of what made us more most friendly, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But I've seen you tweet a lot about a lot of Spotify hate. Right. Are they the wor the worst of the bunch as far as taking care of artists? Or um, I would not say they are the <clears throat> most active in 
um, okay, how do, how do I explain it? So, okay, so for I want to say first that I love streaming. Mm-hmm. I think streaming is the best thing to happen to the music business in a very long time. It um, opens people's ears to so many new things. and uh, Like, I've never listened to more music than I do yeah. now on streaming, but I have Apple. Uh, I have Apple Music. Um, I got rid of my Spotify. And the reason that I did is because, so <laughs> there is uh, something called the the um, the royalty, the, the CRB, Copyright Royalty Board. And they convene every five years, I think, to um, look at royalty rates. So <laughs> there, so the... The CRB approved um, a 44% raise for songwriters over the next five years. And that does not mean very much when you're talking about, you know, like a 12%. I mean, you're getting less than a know. penny per play, uh, right? It's like a oh, like a lot less le- than a penny. Less per- than a penny per hundred plays. So like... It doesn't seem like you can really take care of yourself on that kind no, of scratch. No, you can't. So like this, this means nothing to them, uh, you know, so um, so the only people to appeal that ruling were Spotify, um, uh, Amazon, Google, and uh, Pandora, and so so four huge ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, so <clears throat> Apple declined to appeal, and so did Tidal. So, you know, I, 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 and I also feel like they're just, you know, they're, I understand that people really love their Spotify and, you know, my fiance has Spotify and I will not lie that I will, you know, tell my personal robot to play, you know, like last night I was cooking dinner and I told my robot to play number one city, uh, uh, Radio City number one record by Big Star. And that's what I listen to on Spotify, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't. I don't pay for it. And yep. I don't fair. Yeah. I don't subscribe in, in your opinion as an artist and as a songwriter, what do you think would be a fair pay per play for a Spotify or Apple? Like if an artist, what should they make per, per play? I mean, that's a really good question. I, I'm not a, a mathematician, so I can't, I, I can't really say what would be fair. Um, <clears throat> I can't really. I can't really answer that. Uh, I've asked a few people, and no one seems to really have an idea. Like, a, a, you, you would think in your mind that a penny a play seems like an easy thing to do, right? But then that's so much money for the companies, right? But still, right? You're just well, and not for nothing. The 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 on the label side, like artists are are making a ton. It's the songwriter side that isn't because remember I talked about the two pies. There's mm-hmm. the sound recording, and then there's the the performance, the copyright. So it's, so artists and labels so, are making money on, yes. on the streams. So if you are an artist and you own your master recording, you own your publishing, and you're getting played, you are making a killing on streaming. Really? Yes. I actually did not know that. Yes. Okay. You're doing great. Okay. But, um, you know, if you are a songwriter that doesn't perform, that you're just a song, like a working class songwriter that is getting cuts on people's albums, um, you're making shit. You're not probably not even scraping by. <laughs> well, not not in streaming. I mean, right. if you get like big licenses, if you get big TV sinks, or film or get, something. Yeah, if you get yeah. big things in a movie or in if you get that Target commercial or whatever, then then you're going to do great. Mm-hmm. Your ASCAP check is going to look amazing, but not on streaming. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, thank you so much for doing all this work. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure you're in it for the long haul. You have a lot more work to do. Yes. But it's amazing that someone is doing something for people that don't even know how screwed they're getting. Join Sona. <laughs> it's really a thing. So you can go to uh, wearesona.com. Mm-hmm. And you also started something um, for, for songwriters that have been struggling since COVID happened. Right. So um, early on in the pandemic, like pretty much right away, we were like, you know, songwriters were like, when we went into shutdown, songwriters, you know, their their sessions got canceled. Their, you know, it, it was just like everything that you do during your day to make money was gone. Even just like going meeting people for coffee and stuff like that. It's just like it's that's where we do. We don't have offices. We don't have no call. You know, colleagues every day. You know, it's like we're always yeah. hustling with. Everything shut down, and so we realized that not only was this going to be a huge financial hit for songwriters, but also just like your sense of community is gone. Like you're just stranded, and that's for everybody. And but yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I mean, yep. yeah, you're right. Everybody yep. experienced that. So we like we immediately, you know, we, our events committee immediately started like hosting events online you know the first couple of months we had like the quarantine hall where people could just come and vent and then we did something that is like so not us we did uh open mics (laughs) and so which is like so not our jam but we did but people like needed things people needed to do stuff and then um and then we got a donation from um from um, uh, Robert Platt from uh, from Sony Music Publishing and so John Platt. Why did I say Robert? John Platt from Sony Music Publishing, who is a huge supporter of songwriters, and um, he gave us a donation for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And he said, "Go." I know. Beautiful. That's he's really a, heartwarming. He's fucking amazing. He said, "Go help songwriters," and we were like, uh, "Give me goosebumps." Okay. All right, so um, then we quickly realized, like, oh, you can't just give out that money. So we had to start because um, like we're, f- right? we're we're like a, we're a five hundred one c six. Sona is, which is like, I don't know what the fuck that is. So that's a nonprofit <laughs> status. Okay, I got you. That like gives us we are allowed to do certain things. It's we're uh, an advocacy organization. Okay. Um, we're not allowed to like take in and give out money. So we had to start a 501c3. Uh, so we, we did that and started the songwriter fund and immediately started uh, giving out $1,000 emergency grants to songwriters who were affected by COVID, you know, had financial consequences from mm-hmm. COVID. And uh, we just relaunched the program. So you can go to the songwriterfund.com, fill out an application. And um, if you're accepted, we'll wire you a thousand bucks right away. So, Beautiful thing. Yeah. Again, thank you on behalf of people that I know and people in our industry who really, really need, have needed help the whole year. But even to this day, yeah. even though things like when you and I were walking in, we were talking about both being vaccinated and how it just feels good that it feels like we're getting towards mm-hmm. the end of it. But people like us and people in the industry, we're still a long ways from being back to any kind of living. I know. Like I know. I, I've been touring with bands since 2005 and things are looking good, but I don't have dates on the books until like September, yeah. October. I know. It's like your whole entire industry just oh, like gone. evaporated My, my career overnight. disappeared. Yep. Overnight. And, uh, Same thing with Clay, my fiance. It's yep. like, that's what he does. Right. He tours right. and like, it was just all of a sudden just 
gone. And I was thinking about for the last few years, I've been wanting to get out of touring because yeah. I just, I like being, I like being home. I like my friends. I love my wife. I like, I like the comfort of being home, mm -hmm. but I don't like having my career taken away against my will. Like I wanted right. to, I wanted to step away when I was ready. Did you find uh, that this forced you, like all those things that you said that you want, you do to get off the road did you start to do them? A little bit. I yeah. mean, I, I've been doing this kind of stuff since like 2009. Mm -hmm. I, I did a radio show with uh, Dave Navarro for 10 years, and it kind of got me really in love with doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm very focused on having this be kind of what I do. That's cool. But COVID definitely pushed me into like, right. maybe you should take this a bit more seriously. Right. So there's some good and bad. I think yep. Darren and I have talked a lot about like the goods and bads of the last year. And, there's um, a lot of it. For I mean, you have a family, so I'm sure it's been nice to... Nice at most times to spend so much time with your family. Yeah. I mean, for uh, like our turmoil started early because my daughter was uh, doing a study abroad program in Italy. Oh, shit. And she was in Italy. She left in January and was doing her study abroad. And quick history lesson. Italy was doing really, really bad. At the it beginning. was the, it was outside of outside of China. It was like ground zero for covid in the rest of the world right so we over here in the united states were hearing about like this it's it's getting bad and like something was different about it this was not bird flu or like sar like it wasn't this was something different and zoe mabel was not getting that over there and she couldn't figure out why we were freaking out and um and then they started so we actually first evacuated her to Paris because her stepmom is um, Zoe's stepmom is uh, is a makeup artist and a bunch of her friends had gone to Paris for Fashion Week so we actually evacuated her from Italy to Paris just to see what was going to happen and she was staying like in this bougie like pied de terre in Paris uh, poor kid. And, like, but she was <laughs> yeah. miserable of course she was like all of her friends were like yeah you know like School's canceled for the week, and they were partying. And, and your daughter's just with a bunch of adults. She doesn't know. She was so bombed, and so we ended up evacuating her from Paris. But um, and getting but that whole that must thing have been was terrifying like, as a parent. It was horrifying because she um, oh god, it was just so upsetting. At the same time, my parents were coming to stay with us because they were on their way to a cruise ship to take their dream cruise. <sighs> So Massachusetts. And then the fucking, I know, totally, totally. We're but going not, to Barbados. Not, not for nothing. The fucking cruise ship let, let them on. Let them on. My father, my, after they had just been staying with a girl who had just left Italy, an 18-year-old, they were staying with her. And my dad is like, he's old. He's like held together with like wire and toothpick. Like he's like not, <laughs> he's fucking old. Right, they right. let them on the boat and then they dumped them in, in Mexico uh, a week later. And um, so before shutdown even happened, we were like dealing with crazy. I feel like the worst it ever got happened before we even shut before down. Before shit even hit the fan. Yeah, exactly. Oh it's my crazy. God. Wow. Uh, wow. Your parents still live in mass? Yeah, they're down, they're down the Cape. Where are you from? Are you, you're from, I'm from Dorchester? Dorchester, yeah. Okay. And Is actually, it? my daughter's moving home. She just got a job with City Year in Boston, and uh, she my, might my, be My wife did that. Okay. No way. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, she's taken a gap year before grad school. And so. Did you grow up with the Wahlbergs? I did. You did? Yeah. See, I grew up in Acton, which is like not the city. I grew up in the suburbs. Yeah. But even when I was a kid, I knew who the Wahlbergs were because they were like, they were bad kids. They were bad kids. Like, they weren't bad kids. They weren't. They, uh, they were just a huge family. Sure. And like, did not have money. Right. They were like, they were poor. Okay. They were in a poor, in a very working class, blue collar neighborhood that was not, we did not have, none of us had money, but like of all that, they were definitely the poorest and just a huge, with dogs and like the, you know, they were, I know was, the type. it was a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up in my, in my hometown. It's like a pretty wealthy town, but my family was easily the poorest. It's not like and, Bill Ricca. Acton? Acton? No, it's like Bill Acton Ricca. and Concord. Yes, it's like, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. Acton like, Boxborough yeah. is yep. my high school. Yeah. Um, Steve Carell. Route 2? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. I live right off of Route 2. There you go. Um, but like my, my house was like the shittiest house in town. We had like multiple Christmas trees in the front yard from multiple Christmases <laughs> and like cinder blocks and tires and yeah. They must have loved you. Oh, they hated it. And like <laughs> Acton is, is a big like historical society and yeah, they yeah, want yeah. everything to stay this is how it was in 1720, so don't yep. change anything. But, like, yeah, they hated it. So I can relate to them, like, uh, when you're poor, you do crazier shit, and you just have to get by, and yeah. you don't, or you have no one looking after you to let you know what, what yeah. is right and what, what is wrong. Mm-hmm. So what, were they, what was it like growing up with those guys? Um, well, I mean, we, we all were in the summer. So we there were a bunch of weirdos in our neighborhood. There was like kids that would end up coming out as gay, you know, in our family there was, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of us in our direct neighborhood had a lot of stuff going on. And so in the summers so we there was a schoolyard right at the end of our street called the Woodrow Wilson and we called it the Woody. And so we were the Woody kids and we would go hang out and you know in the summertime and play stickball and and uh you know we we all hung out. <coughs> Marky was the the youngest so he didn't really hang out with us but like Donnie was, you know, he, we were best besties. And um and we're still in touch. Mm-hmm. Um and actually their mom just died. Oh, a couple of weeks ago. So Alma, who was like you know strong ass woman. Well, she has to be to have all those all those boys. To, oh my god! I mean, there were le- let's see how were they were really a du- double digit? Fam- okay, that's a lot. Nine, yeah, yeah. That is a lot. So there was Marky, Donnie, Bobo, Jimbo. Paul, did I say Paul? No. Arthur, Arthur, Shelley, and another sister. <laughs> this reminds me of the scene in uh, uh, Goodwill Hunting when they're listing off all the brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Danny, Donnie, Brian, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, Tracy. Okay. Tracy. That reminded me, too. I remember one time I was on tour with Jane's Addiction, and we were playing in Boston, and I turned in my guest list. Oh, my and God. they thought it was a joke. It was... Yeah. Cleary, McCarthy, oh, Figler, yeah. Murphy. Yeah. And they're like, this is a joke, right? I'm like, N- I didn't think about it, but no, these are my, these are my people. <laughs> um, I'm an Irish kid from Boston. These are my, these are my Smitty, friends. Smitty, Oakey. They thought it was a total, Patterson. Maca. Patterson was oh, one. Yeah. Like it was, it was really, really funny. <laughs> um, you and I also bonded on being uh, diehard Red Sox fans. Yes. And uh, last year you donated. Yeah. That you donated that Damon bat. Yep. 
for uh, hot, for stove, hot stove, cool, cool music. music. Yeah. Can you quickly explain what that is? Because that's a, it's such a cool thing, and yeah. I've been a fan of that for such a long time. Um, so, so yeah, so we're both like diehard Red Sox fans from just forever. Obviously, mm-hmm. we know this about each it other. It does happen at birth. So, I mean, if you're uh, yeah. born there, it's like it's not. And a, plus, it's like you know, it's so like in like like we love you know Irish people from New England. We love to suffer. We love to earn. You know, we everything needs to feel earned. If it's not, not a lot earned. of suffering in the last couple decades, though, it's been a <laughs> exactly. good good twenty years for the Boston sports fan. <laughs> Generally speaking, though, yeah, not just in baseball, but like you know, generations lived and died without ever oh, seeing a I, championship. I brought so. this to show you. Oh my this god, this is a, a sign ball from <gasps> Buckner and Mookie Wilson. No. Yeah, which oh is like God. one of the most famous. It's not the ball, of course, but so signed I, by both. But I just loved, I love how you are a collector of these things, of bats it. and balls. And like, it, this is like a whole other level. Uh, so I'll give um, you a tour sometime so of, of uh, a lot of my shit. But so you haven't amazing. met Dan? They call him the uh, trash man. <laughs> the trash. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, collect, <laughs> I, I collect toys other men have played with, which is uh, interesting. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Hot Stove Cool Music uh, started in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Gammons, who is a Hall of Fame baseball writer, in case you don't know, amazing. Just the best. Hero, just the best fucking guy. Great mind. Um, and so he, you know, everybody has their like fundraisers and so all of his colleagues have like their golf tournaments and shit. And so he wanted to do something, but he's not... He's a he's a rock and roll fan, and you know plays guitar, plays right? guitar, and so um, he you know, and we we were peripherally friends with him through our friend uh, Jeff Horrigan, who at the time was the beat writer for the Notebook writer for the Boston Herald, and um, and so Jeff and and Gamo wanted to do this fundraiser and they had this idea they want to do a rock concert and an auction and stuff and so they called me in like you know the end of 99 the end of 90 like winter just the beginning of winter 99 like december or something like that or maybe like january of 2020 and i'm sorry 2000 and uh they were like oh we want to do this thing they told me what it was and you want to do it and i was like yeah when do you want to do it they were like we got the paradise booked in six weeks i was like you cannot do the par get people to paradise in the dead of winter in six weeks and have a fundraiser and do all the shit that you want to do. And by the way, like, the paradise in Boston has the most inconvenient pole in, in the, the middle, middle of the floor. Of the, yeah. It is the worst the location worst. of a pole in the entire city oh. as far as seeing a show goes. Yeah. But no I one wants that. the pole. But, but I love that room. It's a great spot. I still love that. The yep. sound is amazing. Yep. So, but it whole it's what what capacity is like eight fifty maybe. So like you can't just have. So I was like, all right, let's go. And so we did it. The room was full and like, you know, people just came out to support Gammons and, you know, I played a solo set. Like I, Zoe wasn't even a year old then. She was a baby. Oh, she was born back there. Okay. Yeah. And um, who was on the lineup on that first show? I mean, you guys have had some um, oh, Thurman Munson. It was Holy all shit. baseball named people. Thurman, who the was that? Oh my God, Jeff would kill me if I couldn't remember. Thurman Munson and another. I I can't remember. It was another baseball player named band. And then me and Gammons. And, you know, Gammons had a band of like all of the Boston people and uh, who are now the Boston, all you know, the hot stove all stars. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and it raised twenty five thousand dollars that first year. And it's just grown since then. Well, it's become yeah, a staple. Then in two thousand four, uh, two thousand three, when uh, when Theo was named the GM of the Red Sox, he was twenty nine year old wonderkind. It was changed the, everything. The youngest yep. GM in all of Major League Baseball in the history of Major League Baseball, and uh, he came in and he. He and his brother, uh, you know, he's from Brookline, mm-hmm. and his brother is... Uh, he looks like it. He looks like a Brookline guy. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. And his brother, um, his brother Paul, is was a high school teacher at Brookline High, and he and his wife had a lot, did a lot of, like, service in the community, and, and so Paul was just like, we're going to start a foundation, and so it ended up that they created a foundation that merged forces with Hot Stove Cool Music, and then we became the financial, like the concert engine behind, you know, that raised money for the foundation. So we've been doing it that way. And then when, then when Theo went to the Cubbies, we started doing an event in Chicago as well. So. That was cool to see. Yeah, that it continued on. Yeah, but you've had what? What are some of your favorite guests that have been part of those shows? I mean, well, we're doing. When is this airing? Like this week. Oh, okay. Because yeah. our our um, hot stove cool music is on Wednesday. And sorry, t- Tuesday. And people will hear. Some people will hear it the day. So it's happening today. If you're but like it. Eddie yeah. Vedder is playing on it. Amazing, and he's yeah. been a part of it a few times, right? Yeah, yeah. That guy. Yo Yo Ma is on it this year. I've only hung out so with cool. Eddie Vedder one time, and all we did was talk about baseball. Mm-hmm. And uh, he reached yeah. into his pocket and pulled out a bunch of his guitar picks, and all of them were different. Uh, theme park like Fenway picks and Wrigley picks. No way. And uh, yeah, he was he, he's a, a real baseball lover. Real, and I was very happy yeah. for him that his Cubs finally got to win. Yep. In yep. 2016. Yep. Yep. Um, before we let you go, uh, I do want to. You're a big fan of this, uh, the cryptocurrency and NFTs, mm-hmm. and I don't know anything about any of that, <clears> but <throat> I want to know. And Darren is also a bit of an expert, but you guys have a couple different. I wouldn't opinions. go that far. Well, I mean, you you worked on Wall Street. I mean, you kind of know what you're talking about. Eh, a little bit. Yeah. So what got you into the the crypto? And I mean, NFTs are very new, but. Right, right, right. Um, well, I, um, so my fiance, Clay James, is, uh, is an inventor. And uh, built, like he built his fir- first computer, you know. For real? Back, yeah, wow. back when. And, you know, he's got patents for like things. Like he's crazy, just loves technology. So I've met him loves. once. I'm, now I've, I'm happy that I, I've met an inventor in my life. That's yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. he's, he's super cool, super just like. His name sounds familiar. Clayton James. He's, uh, he, he does. Uh, he's the inventor, play- dude. The inventor. <laughs> the inventor. <laughs> but he, does, he does playback for, like, he's, he's always out with, like, Kiss and yep. Eagles. And anyway, that's all that you should have him on. He's I would love quite to, an interesting, mm-hmm. quite an interesting career in the, in the music business. Um, but he, in 2017, was like, we are, I want to mine Ethereum. I was like, what the fuck is that? And he, so I, like, I had heard of, I had heard of Bitcoin, I had heard of blockchain, but none of these, the cryptocurrency, but to me, that sounds like made up. It's, Kid is, stuff. It's stupid. Yeah. Stupid. Like, why would I ever be interested in Bitcoin? It sounded dumb to me. It's just like. It did I, sound I, dumb, it, didn't it? It sounded really dumb. So he builds this Ethereum mine. And, um, and so in 
I kind of am learning on the fly what this is. I still don't quite understand it. And I don't think anyone does. So we had like six, six notes, you know, like our, our rig had six nodes in it. So basically what we're doing is, you know, it's a, it's, there are, there are computers all over the world, you know, peer to peer closing, right? closing blocks, you know, like completing transactions through um through what through a consensus method called proof of stake, and so uh, I didn't know that that was what it was called at the time. But um, but then he fucking left to go on the road, and I had to learn how to mine a thing. Like I had to take care of the mine. Oh, like, nice. It was like so, I learned how to like I had to you know it it crashed a lot, so I'd have to like restart it and like reboot the whole system. And and basically, I through that process, I could kind of see how this was working and how like, you know, like our, my, our node was competing with other nodes all around the world to complete transactions and to close blocks. So anyway, it just kind of captured my imagination in a way that like nothing else really ever has. And I, you know, so I, I started investing back then and, you know, and I get my first, uh, my first crypto purchase was on uh, in October of 2017, and I bought three ETH, which is the the native token of Ethereum, is called Ether. And Your friends, I rich bought, Dan. No, I bought, I bought my first transaction was three ETH in October of 2017 for $800. Okay. And well, right now for all three for all three. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and then I had a bunch of like little, like I, I never put in like tons of money, but I would buy like, you know, like $75 worth of ETH and I would buy like $50 worth of, so my first three coins were Bitcoin, ETH and Litecoin. Can you Those imagine someone in the three. 1950s hearing this conversation for the first time? <laughs> oh, they would explain. What'd you buy? Three. Okay. So three ETH. So, so, so but, you can't touch it, right? <laughs> it's money, but it's not real. What? <laughs> but it's, it, I mean, what is, what is, what is currency? Right. Yeah. Some people would it's argue that our, we, our actual money is not backed up as much as it should be. You know, it's, it's really, it, it really has made me think a lot about currency and what it means and how it's valued. And, and there, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, the value of bit, there is a finite amount of Bitcoin that can be minted. So it's actually a deflationary asset. You, that's why it's, it increases in value. Right. It's not like U.S. currency where you can just print more. Right, which is, right. You know, which is kind of what they do, which is kind of what my problem right. is with Doge, is the unlimited supply. It's an inflationary. But you're wrong. Am I? Yes. Oh, shit. Okay, tell I'm going to back more. up. <laughs> tell me more. Well, no, I really, wa I really yeah. want to know what you it, have to say about that. It is unlimited, this. but it, it is, um, it's only a certain percentage per year, and that number decreases as time passes. Okay. Do you so, think you can get to a dollar? Absolutely. It's already hit 75 cents. Oh, it did? Yeah. Oh, because you and I talked a few weeks ago, and you were like, it was in the 40 cents something, and you were like, dude. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. It hit 75? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it dropped again, but it's No wonder you, were, you weren't returning my text. Jesus. You're cutting yeah, your, cut, your cash. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting rich. Yeah. So yeah. are you a, a Doge maximalist? Do you, do, do you own any other coins, or are you just no, a Doge No, I'm, I'm, I'm in on other coins. Okay. Um, 
but it was my first crypto pur- purchase. So that makes it, it's like, it's kind of emotional. Yeah, our relationship it, to the coin that got us into. Right. Yeah. That's how I feel about yeah. we it's all like the team. That, it's like the team that drafts you. You always love the team that drafts you right. in sports. Right. It's um, emotional. Except for maybe Kobe, right? <laughs> he got drafted by... Uh, Did he? Was he drafted by a different team? He was drafted by uh, the Hornets, but they traded him. But look at him now. I mean, it didn't work. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I shouldn't have even brought it up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but Dan definitely oh had to go there. I had to. Okay. <laughs> back, to, back to your fake money. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah it was my first crypto purchase. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about crypto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I started investing in stocks in August, which isn't even a year yet. Okay. Um, and um, I just saw the graph. So it was on Robinhood, and mm-hmm. I saw the graph of it. And I was just like, this continually appreciates. Mm-hmm. I looks good to me. So I threw $20 into it. Mm-hmm. It's like, $20, whatever. Um, which was the day before it went, it went to $0.08, cents, which, which was the talk of the town. Mm-hmm. You bought it the day before it went to 8 The day before. Wow. Um, so it was so under I a bu- penny at that time? It was a penny when I bought it first. Wow. Um, for, and I bought it for $20 and even that whole day, cause it's, cause cryptocurrency trades 24 seven. So, you know, I was on wall street. It's like, it's Monday through Friday, right? Monday through Friday, nine to four. Okay. Yeah. So 24 hours a day worldwide. And there's okay. after hours as well, which became a later thing. Okay. Which thanks to Bernie Madoff for that. But mm. <laughs> Hey Bernie. Thanks buddy. Thanks dude. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I worked late, so I was up, like, pretty late when I first bought it. I, th- I think I bought it, like, midnight, and I was up to, like, two or three. And it depreciated depreciated that first night. I was like, oh, man. I mean, I, I you know, obviously I didn't have any expectations for it to, like, bl- I, I just was like, oh, it looks like something that continually appreciates. And the next morning, um, like... I think I probably made like a couple bucks on it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And I was a new investor, so I was scared. So I, so I, 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 I took my, my initial investment back. Mm-hmm. And I kept whatever else was in. And then it blew up. And the, the, the story for me is, or for me was, was that like, so just a long story short, I moved here to do comedy um and uh that didn't kind of work out you, you know this is why i'm here with dan as these things happen so no one's plans work out the way they want them to <laughs> no, ever. ever and so as a comedian or as a person who at least thinks he's a comedian or as a you know he's funny I, by the way i i i was like <laughs> i was like you know it would be so funny because i went to private school you know my mom spent a lot of money for me to go to private school in New York and I went to a great college and And you're like, I want to tell jokes (laughs) and, Uh and nothing has worked out for me. And I said, you know what would be the most ironic thing in the world is if this makes me rich, right? (laughs) Play money. Right. So I said, you know what? Fuck it. Everything else that I've supposedly did right in life (laughs) has not done anything for me or Uh at least in my view. I was like, you know what? This is going to be my thing. I'm going to put a little bit more money into this. And uh, I think that was the day that it went crazy. And then I was still scared. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think it went to eight and then I think it started dropping down to like four or five and then I sold my initial investment again and then take your profits and then yeah, buy I took, low. Yeah, I took, I, yeah, I took my profits and then, um, I think it was trading sideways for a while, but I just kind of, you I don't huddled. know. I felt, yeah. I you felt, yeah. I felt good about it, which is what you do. And yeah. And so, yeah. So before I, the, before I first bought it, there was no real news about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And then it went crazy. And I was just like, this just, this can't like, I literally just bought it the night before. On a joke, mm-hmm. I do comedy. I'm just like this, 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 this. you're like Dogecoin is for me. Yeah, like this, this is the stupidest one. Be, That's for me. Yeah, like yeah. this, and I mean it hasn't made me rich, but it's definitely put the most money in my pocket that I've ever had. That's wild. So, yeah. well, I mean the thing about Doge is that I'm, you can, you know, the 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 graphs of it, like you can see the, Oh, it goes wild. I mean, the pumps and dumps are like, so you can time it in a way, but that's the thing about Doge that I don't like is that it, the value of it kind of like rises and falls on, you know, social media (laughs) and like, I mean, does it, so for me as a person who's very, um, like kind of, uh, conservative about my money because I've never really like I've always had to really be careful um so for me it's like to be there are other places in crypto where like for me and by the way I gotta I gotta go pretty soon oh sure no problem um but um the thing I love about ethereum is that it is you know there bitcoin is you know bitcoin the thing about it Bitcoin is like a store of value, you know? Yeah, they say and it's the liquid, uh, the digital gold. Yeah. But, it's like something you hold, but you don't sell. You hodl it, right? Or yeah. you can like, you can, I mean, right now it's it's sort of trading sideways, as you say. Right. But, um, but Ethereum is a network. It's sort of like mm-hmm. the way I like to think about it is like... Um, you know, it's a it's a an interstate highway system, and so you can build it. Has it has what's called a smart contract, which you can build. Th- you can NFTs are built on Ethereum for this reason because you can build an NFT on top of Ethereum, and the smart contract gives the trigger between. So the smart contract is not. It's not smart and it's not a contract, but it's a great great naming. It's it's a transaction (laughs) that is like if this. It's a trigger. If this, then that. So if the which is all of computing, (laughs) right? Me probably. (laughs) Yeah, it's either zero or one. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, we hadn't even even thought about that. See, he's smart guy over here. Smart guy. So, um, so. You can, but but it's not just NFTs. It's like you know, um, decentralized finance, like loans and even real estate, establishing provenance for pieces of art. All of these things can be built on top of Ethereum, and and so the complaint about Ethereum is you know the massive amount of computational power required right. to and mine the, it. Carbon copy, right? And, carbon footprint. And as I as I know, but. Um, not for nothing, but that's kind of, that's a little bit disingenuous because you know, that's, again, that's a whole other podcast, but <laughs> we'll have but to do this again now, for sure. But yeah. there are now other um, protocols that are developed, being developed on uh, using a consensus method called proof of work, 
which does not require uh, mining. So right. it's like, it, so there are protocols called like. So that's uh, your polka dot. That's your problem with Doge then. Car- because it's proof of work. no, no, my, my no. It's I mean, it's Doge is Doge is mined by Litecoin miners, so right. um, they do use proof of work. Uh, <clears throat> that's not really my problem with it. My problem with it is that it doesn't do anything. It doesn't. It is strictly the value of it is all about hype and like very predictable pump and dump schemes. And, you know, you can't, you can time that, you can make money from that, you you can, people can do well, but it's not, so, and it, you know, it could stay this way forever, but like if a whale who holds, you know, like a bazillion Doge coins right. decides like gets, you know, decides to dump it all, like Which if, happened. if someone, you know, pulls a, and Elon, like what Elon just did with Bitcoin, which actually I think should, the fact that 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 Bitcoin did not take a deeper dive, like kind of held at that support it level it of didn't 48. Get, it didn't get blazed that bad. So no, I'm, it I'm didn't. not. It I'm not good at this stuff. But if someone dumps a bunch, it brings all the value down. Right, yeah. because they're right? selling yeah. okay. and no one's buying. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay. Yeah. So if you sell all your coins, then yeah, then the value drops. Got it. So um, so you're flooding the market with coins. Right. Right. You know. Got it. So Just think of it. You know. You know. As, as as simple as supply and demand. Like if you have a thousand shirt t-shirts and 2000 people want them. How much are you going to charge for them? I know this way because I collect baseball bats. Right, exactly. Cal Ripken just gave his entire personal bat collection of all of his like home run bats and stuff flooded the market with hundreds of them. And now his overall value has gone down. Right. So I, I get it. Right. See? Yeah, see, find a way to make it work there for you. Go. And that's why we're here. There you go. Um, and when people talk about, um, you know, NFTs, like why would I, buy something when I can just look at, why can, Why would I buy a, a PDF file when I could just look Google at it, it on? Or whatever. Well, on, you as a writer and but, an artist, you understand why. But it's like, you can look at the Mona Lisa, you could take a picture of it and put it in your, but you don't fucking own it. Right. right. You know, and with, with NFTs on the Ethereum network, it's like the token, you know, you have a unique token, a unique a provable, uncorruptible this provenance of this work of art that this is mine. Before I let you go, I want to say one thing, cool thing about NFTs that I know that I love is that if someone creates a, 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 a piece of art on NFTs, mm-hmm. you, as an artist, you can sell it. And if that person sells it, you get a piece of it every time they sell. But only on the same, but only if I sell it on, if I create and sell my uh, NFT on like Nifty Gateway, then every time it is sold on the secondary market, the creator gets a 10% royalty. Mm-hmm. But if I take the NFT that I own and move it over to OpenSea, oh, that is no moves? longer, it doesn't, so mm, it's not, there's no interoperability oh. between C because the, the smart contract is neither smart nor a contract. So it doesn't recognize if I move my NFT over to OpenSea that royalty no longer gets kicked back to, you can't amend the token later to recognize if I'm over on OpenSea, which is why music NFTs are a little problematic right now, but we can do a whole entire episode on, actually I'm doing uh, an NFT webinar 
for Ooh. the uh, Association of Independent Music Publishers this Thursday at 2 p.m. PT. Where can people watch that? It's uh, you can you have to go to Association of Independent Music Publishers (AIMP) and sign up for the webinar. I think it's like five bucks for non-members. Cool. But that is uh, Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. Wonderful. Oh, cool. Well, and just can I quickly give you a one-minute rebuttal to to why? There um, we go. Doge <laughs> is actually <clears throat> worth something. Sure. Simply because it. Um, like we talked about as far as currency goes, it really is the belief yeah. in it. And 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 it's like, it's not like Santa only, Claus. Not I mean, not no, really. But the dollar. Or, but yeah, or gold. It, like right, if gold, you believe yeah, it true. has value. It's, I just believe. A, it's, a, it's a mineral. Like what we yeah. cl- we as a collective society or enough people have, have decided, decided that yes. this is worth You're absolutely right. Um money or or currency mm-hmm. and um it's no different than what the dollar is because the dollar is backed by nothing as well I so agree. um in my mind the way the its value is is in the people yeah and you're right and the internet because the internet's undefeated right that also makes it terrifying if you ask yeah. me but it yeah. is it's not a safe store of value for my money but i understand why people love it and i understand why but I, I will make a bet between you and me right now. It will not go to a dollar. Oh, that's a terrible bet on your part. Really? You think? <sighs> it's, okay. It's, I mean, they're projecting <laughs> three to five now. Let's talk. Three and to five dollars? Let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk in six months. That's not going to happen. In order for Doge to get to a dollar, it would have to have a larger market cap than Ethereum. Not for a dollar. It's not for a dollar. I don't think you're. I don't think you're right about that. You don't oh, think so? we, we've okay. already almost hit seventy six cents. But have you wondered why it hasn't been able to move, even with all the like the hype? You know why? Listen, because it was five cents two months ago. Mm-hmm. Listen, let's <laughs> do right. this. Let's do this again in November and see where we're. Let's all see at. where we're at. I will. We still don't be have o- to. I will still be over here, not <laughs> investing I'm in anything you right now. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, listen, the, the road to a dollar is like within a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Okay. Okay. We'll circle back in six months. We will. Right. But uh, am I come you back down? You can totally bust my balls forever. Obviously, because <laughs> I just went on record on this show. Or you that can bust his balls. I mean, we'll we'll see. I'm not going to bust balls. I understand. This is a. You're very a Boston strange. chick. Of course, this you're going to bust very, some balls. This is a very strange. I mean, crypto is very. It's, it's very there, strange. There are there there are a lot of forces at play that are not usually associated with. Uh, the valuation of currency. Yeah. So anything is possible except a dollar doge. Oh, wow. shit. Oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> on that note, you're looking uh, at the guest. On that note, you can follow uh, Kay Hanley at Kay Hanley, H A N L E Y, at Dinelli Radio. Thank you so much for coming. Aww, it was nice thanks, to, man. I feel like I actually really kind of know you better now. Well, like, this was really great. Thank we'll you. We'll do it again. We will. Um, Thanks, Darren. And, uh, Even you. Yes. <laughs> Even <laughs> you. You were fabulous. <laughs> New York and Boston. Still button heads after yeah. all these years. <laughs> Love it. Uh, and everybody else, uh, follow us at Rareform Radio. Uh, go to the Patreon. Follow us on YouTube. Like, subscribe. I hate doing those plugs, but you got to do it, you right? You got to do it. You got to do it. Being a business person, having the uncomfortable conversation <sighs> with your partners. Give me money. Give, give him me, your uh, money. Give He's me your, working I want hard. your attention. Uh, you know, I'm bringing in hard-hitting, tough Boston chicks who are God's also very, work. very smart. So yeah. 
Um, I appreciate all you do for artists. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. And uh, let's do it again soon. Go socks. Go socks. This is Lola, and I'm here to tell the world to stop being such pussies and listen to Rare Form Radio.